What do you find yourself talking about the most? What do you find yourself talking about the most? I realize some of you are more talkative than others, but all of us, at some point throughout our days and our weeks, are talking, talking to others, whether that be face-to-face or on the phone or via text message or, Lord, help us on the Internet. We're all talking. So what is it that you talk about the most? Is it your children? Perhaps it's your work. Perhaps you find yourself pulled into talking about our culture a lot. Or maybe it's your favorite music. Perhaps you're talking about ways that you can make more money. You find yourself talking about politics and our authorities. Another question to add on to that, then how are you talking about what you talk about the most? How do you talk? What is your disposition? Do you speak as one who is full of love or full of hate and disdain and bitterness? And one final question. How often do you find yourself talking about Jesus? How often do you find yourself talking about Jesus? And I'm not just asking this question to those of us who are Christians or those of us who are adults or or just members of this church. Children, guest, I'm thinking of you too. Maybe you're even here this morning and you're not a Christian. How often do you talk about Jesus? Have you ever even heard of him to begin with? We as a church, we talk a lot about Jesus, don't we? As I think it should be. We, we, we kind of make Jesus the point of everything. We talk about Him and who we are. We are Jesus people. We are Christians, little Christ, Jesus people. We talk about Jesus and what we believe. This morning in our worship, we confessed our faith using the Apostles' Creed. And you'll notice that the portion about Jesus in the middle there actually takes up the most. We talk about Jesus a lot as a church because it's where our hope is found. We're not a church that spends a lot of time talking about the world around us as the central thing or the issues that the world thinks are important as the central thing or or even the music that we like as the central thing or, you know, our building as the central thing. No, the central thing here for us is Jesus. Because he's the central thing somewhere else that's very important. That's God's word. Jesus is the point of God's word, and so therefore, he is the point of our church. The Bible talks a lot about Jesus from the front to the back. Over this past spring and summer and now into the fall, we've been looking at the continuation of Jesus' story. In in the New Testament, it opens with the four Gospels, telling Jesus' story of his earthly ministry, of his perfect life, and then his death, and then his resurrection, But we've been looking at the book of Acts, which is kind of like Jesus, the sequel. It is Jesus' ongoing ministry after he ascends into heaven through his sent out apostles by the work of the Holy Spirit. You may remember, as we've looked at this book, that that their story, just like Jesus' own ministry on earth, center completely around who he is. Peter has said over and over again in his speeches, this Jesus This Jesus, and that has been the heartbeat of the apostles, of Paul and Silas as well. This Jesus. Why? 
Because the story of Acts has taught us that Jesus' early followers believed that the only hope for this broken world, the only hope for the world around them, and it goes the same for us today, the only hope in a broken world full of broken worship was the one who suffered and died and came to life again. And so I ask you, as we open our Bibles this morning, how much do you find yourself believing and speaking about Jesus? If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today. If you didn't bring your own Bible, you can use our pew Bibles. It's on page 871 there. As always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some blue Bibles in the uh, back in the foyer, and we'd love to give you one as our gift to you today. You can grab one on your way out. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts 17, 1 through 34. Friends, I'm going to read the entire chapter, so let me invite you to stand with me as I do this morning and honor the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord to us on this day. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they went, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even so, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Thank you for staying standing for that entire reading. It's a story that I really think should be read completely together. This entire chapter goes together. Now, any of you who have grown up in church or been to church maybe for any amount of time, you know the second half of that story. It's one that gets used a lot. But really, there's, there's a lot going on in this entire chapter where the two sides of the chapter kind of mirror each other and provide us some really beautiful things. Now, last week in my sermon, I preached really one and a half chapters and I had five points. So this week, I thought I would take it easy on you. I just have two points. Two points, the two sections of this chapter that we're going to lay out. So if you want to write these down, let me go ahead and tell you what the points are and, and where they're found. They're pretty simple. Number one, responding to the call to worship. Responding to the call to worship. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 15 of this chapter. Number two, responding with the call to worship. Responding with the call to worship. So hopefully you got the two differences there. Responding to the call to worship and responding with the call to worship. That second point is going to be found in verses 16 through 34. And as we look at these, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will work on our own hearts. Thinking about that question I asked at the beginning. Helping us to see that a heart devoted to Jesus leads to a mouth that is constantly speaking about Jesus. That's my prayer for us today, is that we would see that, the Holy Spirit would show us that. So let's jump in. Point number one, responding to the call to worship. Responding to the call to worship. In that first section there, verses 1 through 15, we see that Paul, and, and I want to remind you who Paul is right now. Paul, who has just received wounds 
from being beat with rods in Philippi. This Paul now makes his way some 100 miles to Thessalonica and then to Berea. This Paul with fresh wounds on his back does what he does. You see there in verse 2, it says that he enters the Jewish synagogue as was his custom. It was his practice. It had become a habit that whenever Paul shows up in a city, the first thing he does is he goes to his people. We know that Paul is called to go to the Gentiles, but he doesn't go to the Gentiles to the neglect of his own people, but shows up in the synagogues. He knows no other way. Before we look at the response of the people in Thessalonica and Berea, let's consider his message here first. You see it there in verses 1 through 3. First, it says that he reasoned from the Scriptures. Reasoning here means to lay out a convincing argument. Paul here is seeking to lay out an argument, a certain argument. And where does he get his evidence? It says that he reasoned to them from the Scriptures. Now, maybe you don't need me to tell you this because it might be obvious. But when it says that he reasoned to them from the Scriptures, Paul's not using the New Testament. It doesn't really exist, at least as we have it yet. So what are the scriptures that Paul is reasoning from? They're the Old Testament. They're what we call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. So Paul shows up and he's reasoning. He's making an argument to these Jews using their own holy book. And we find really that there are three parts to this argument. Explaining, proving, and then saying. If you have the ESV translation, all three of those words end with ing. Helps us understand what he's doing exactly. He's explaining, improving, and saying. First two, explaining, improving, go together. These two go together. It's like revealing, really. This is the way to think about explaining, improving. In the Greek, it's this idea of, of uncovering a diamond and then holding that diamond up and then showing that it actually is a real gem. And that's exactly what Paul does here. What is the diamond that he first exposes? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, somewhere along the way in, in, in our Christianese, we, we tend to think of Christ as like Jesus' last name. That's not what it is here. So, so disconnect that from Jesus for a second. When, when, when Luke writes here that Paul says he, he, he explains to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, that word Christ there is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one of God. And you really see this laid out in, in Psalm 2. We find a, 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 a prophecy, a messianic foretelling in Psalm 2 talking about his kingship. That there's going to be an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, who God is going to send. And who God is going to make all of his enemies his footstool. But what does Paul say about this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one? See, these were the expectations that the Jews had, that they would, there would be one who would come and he would rule and he would reign and he would conquer. This especially was, was big for those, those first century Jews who were under Roman occupation. They wanted freedom. They wanted their Messiah to come and set them free from this foreign government who was opposing them and oppressing them. They wanted their Messiah. What does Paul say about him here? He says that the Messiah had to come and suffer and rise from the dead. Well, how does Paul get there? 
Man, the Jews knew their Bibles. Where is Paul getting this? If you want to write these down, you can go back and read them this week. In fact, I would encourage it. We read about the Messiah's suffering in passages like Zechariah 13.7. In passages like Isaiah 53. In passages like Psalm 22. And even thinking about this one who would come, who was sent by God. Who would be the offspring, the son. We even saw this past week in our men's and women's Bible studies how Isaac prefigured him. The son that carried the wood up the mountain. That he would suffer. The Messiah would come and he would suffer. But he would rise again. Where's where's Paul getting that idea? We'll write these down as well and go read them. In, In Psalm 16. In Psalm 91. Again, Isaiah 53. All about suffering. But then it ends. That this suffering servant will receive the spoil from his death. Passages like Hosea 6.2. Paul shows them that whoever this Messiah is, he's not going to just come and reign, but he's going to come first and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. That this would be the pathway that the Messiah would take. And then we get to the third part of his argument, saying. What does he say there? It says, saying, this Jesus, sound familiar? That's what Peter says over and over. This Jesus, whom I proclaim, that I preach, that I declare to you, He is the Messiah. He is the one. We know it because He did it. He died. He suffered. And He rose again. And He has become the King sitting on the throne. This is what His ascension taught us. He takes the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and He holds it up to the Jews. He holds it up to their Old Testament Scriptures. He holds up their Messiah to them. And He says, this is Him. Friends, let me just be clear. Whatever you believe about the preaching of God's Word, at its foundation... There is no true biblical preaching apart from this message right here. This is gospel preaching. I know that some of you like to listen to other preachers besides the ones that stand up here in the pulpit. That's great. That's fine. Build your mind and your heart. But if they're preaching anything other than this message, then stop listening. Because we realize that preaching is isn't about a pastor standing up telling stories. It isn't about moralizing about how you can be better and here's 10 steps for a more healthy marriage and 11 steps for financial success. Preaching is not standing up and just commenting on cultural current events or predicting the future. If there's ever going to be conversion... If there's ever going to be any change to our worship as followers of Jesus Christ, to loving Jesus more, Christians, not just pastors, not just preachers, but Christians must speak this gospel truth, no matter what the results might be. And from here, we really get two responses to this message. We see one here in Thessalonica, and then Paul's going to show up in Berea, and we don't get this expanded message, but he does the exact same thing that he does here in Thessalonica. So so let's look at the two responses 
of the Thessalonians and the Bereans. You see the Thessalonians there in verses 4 through 9. They have this, this misunderstanding and this jealousy and this hardening of their hearts. It says that some people are persuaded. Now hang on to that word persuaded. I'm going to come back to it. But it says there that the Jews are moved with jealousy. The Jews gather together a rabble in their jealousy. That, that word rabble is funny, right? What are the rabble? Well, they, in the Greek, it's this word that literally means the, the lowlifes, right? The, the, the people that just kind of dabble around the marketplace and aren't really doing much of anything, you know. They're kind of just sitting on the benches and just talking about and, and oftentimes causing trouble. And the Jews and their jealousy... And their anger and their hatred towards Paul and towards this Christ that he's preaching. They gather together all of this, this rabble in the market and get them going. And he says they set the city in an uproar. They agitate them. And this gives the idea that they frightened the people. They got the people scared of Paul and Silas and their message. And so they, they go to find Paul and Silas. And, and Luke doesn't tell us where they're at, but they're hidden away. Paul and Silas are not there at the house of Jason or, or they're, they're under the floor somewhere. They're hiding. And so they drag out Jason, this guy, and all of his friends. And these are, these are young, young Christians. They've just heard the word and they've responded to it. And now here they are, Jason and the other believers being drug out before the city authorities. And they give them two charges. They charge Paul and Silas with these two things. Look at them there in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's charge number one. It's this idea that they've come and they've troubled the entire world. That they've caused unrest. That they've messed up the way that things were. And things were great. But now they keep showing up. And people start doing weird stuff. And they're messing the whole system up. And then there's a second charge. It's so much worse than that first one though. Look at it there in verse 7. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king. Jesus. The second charge is the charge of sedition. It's the charge of treason, of turning their back on Caesar, the king. You're saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now here's the question. If you're looking at this, here's the question. Are they right? Are these charges correct? Oh, the situation here, what we find is really a worldly misunderstanding. It's, it's really a hate that's not new. It starts with Jesus himself. Back in Luke 23, you can go back and look at it. This is the same issue that's brought up when Jesus himself is on trial. That you've showed up and you've declared that you yourself are the king. That you've declared that Caesar is not Lord of all, but you are Lord of all. It's not new and, and friends, it continues to this day. But in reality, we find that this mob has it backwards. They have it backward because the world was actually created upright. The world was set right, but it was our sin that turned the world upside down. It was our sin that done did everything and that broke all that God had made good and right. Friend, maybe you're here today and you don't think very highly or very much of sin. But understand this, that God in His goodness created a world that was perfect and upright. 
And it was our turning from him, our deciding to go our own way that broke it. And these men, by proclaiming the gospel now, Paul and Silas, are being used to turn the world right side up again. The misunderstanding of hard hearts is here, as often as we find it in our own day. Is the belief that, that Jesus is going to mess up everything. And there is a sense that he does mess up everything. But only in the sense that he messes it up to be made right. There's that old quote from C.S. Lewis. That when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't show up into your house and just kind of move the furniture around. But when Jesus shows up in your life, he starts knocking down walls and building towers and new rooms and expansions. This is what the kingdom of God does to our lives. This is what the Jews and the Gentiles both in Thessalonica have misunderstood. But this is not the only response. Let's look at the Berean response. We say there that these brothers and sisters are reasonable. That they're humble. And it ends in their belief. See there in verse 10 that Paul and Silas are secretly sent away. They escape. As Jason and his friends began to experience the persecution of having to pay bail to get out of this situation. They protect Paul and Silas and send them off. And where do they go? Where do they go? They show up in Berea. And where do they go? Well, well you know, they, they go to the... You know, to the the local club and they hang out and they lay low for a while. No! Look at where they go! Look back at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. They know no other way. They go right back into the situation that they just left from. But what do we read here about these Jews in Berea? It says there that the Jews were more noble. This word noble, it gets thrown around, not used as much in our own day. What does it mean to be noble? When we hear that word, we think of nobility, and we normally think of princes and princesses. But that's not what the word means here. Noble is this idea of being willing to learn. Their nobleness, what made them noble, what made them honorable, was that they were willing to hear and to learn and to evaluate something. And that's exactly what Luke tells us here. Look back there in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, which in Luke's defense is a direct jab at those Thessalonian Jews. So take it for what it is. How were they noble? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You see that these Jews here, they received the gospel message. They receive it and they search out the scriptures. Those scriptures that Paul had used to evaluate and to examine and to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. They go and they search them out. And there's a good application that's been made many times over and it's a cliche because it's true. That we too should be like these Bereans. That we too should be people who search out the scriptures to see if it is so. 
That's why so often in our preaching here, we'll say, go check out this passage this week. Go back and read this. Go read this book or take up this resource because we want to help equip you to be like the Bereans, to go search out the Scriptures for yourself. One of my goals in preaching week in and week out is to not just hand you the Word of God, but to hand you the skills in learning how to read the Word of God. That's why we simply just go through the passage. Maybe you're here today and you're here not a Christian. And you find yourself, some, find yourself much more like the Thessalonians though. That you have a heart that, that, that seems opposed. It feels, it feels kind of put off by Jesus and by all that He's calling. Maybe you feel like you don't have a heart that's even able to receive this message. Friend, I would ask you, to just stop and pray and ask God if He would do that. That you, He would give you a heart. This is a weird way of putting it, but He'll give you a heart that's able to hear. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're hurting. You're weak. You've had a long summer. Fall's not looking much better. You're struggling. Will you be like the Bereans here and respond with faith? Or will you look elsewhere for joy and sustenance and satisfaction? There's some of us here today who are wrestling with sin and, and we're dabbling in sin and we're enjoying secret sins or, or maybe not so secret sins. And we've begun to harden ourselves like the Thessalonians have. And we, we have become the rabble. And we, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. We want less and less to do with Him because we're enjoying this world too much. And even there's some of us who may be lazy and apathetic in our own searching of God's Word. Our own taking it up for help and for life. Friends, let me encourage you this morning that if we would take up the call of the Bereans here, that we would be like them. You know, I mentioned this a second ago to hang on to this. You notice back up there in verse 4 that it says that some of them were persuaded. See, in Thessalonians, there were some who became Christians, but, but they, were, they were brought along. They were, they were convinced by Paul's apologetics, his, his, his defense of the gospel. But look at how the Bereans respond down there in verse 12. Many of them, therefore. Now that therefore is, is referring back to the way they received the word. That they received it with humility. That they searched out the scriptures. Because they did it that way, many of them, not some of them, many of them, therefore, believed. This is the word of conversion here. That they trusted. That they had faith in this Jesus. This is the result of those who take up God's word and search it out. Once again, as we look at the end there, this last few verses in this section, those Thessalonian Jews show up again in 13 through 15 and they stir up the crowd. They're really ticked about this, this Paul guy and this Jesus he keeps talking about. So they, they're going from town to town. I mean, these towns aren't close to each other. Uh, Berea is off the beaten path. But they show up. And they get the crowds agitated again. Paul's life is again 
under threat. And so this time in particular, they send Paul away alone. Paul goes to Athens, which becomes a new frontier for the gospel. So let's look at the second section here. With responding with the call to worship. In verses 16 through 34, we see there, as I said, that Paul reaches Athens alone. In this city, it's a major city. It's a city that's darkened with statues and monuments to false gods of Greek mythology. Much false worship happens here under gods, false gods that demand service for blessing, that demand prayers and sacrifice for them to give you their specific gifting. So the question as we now enter into Athens is how will Jesus and his kingdom deal with such a place of what we might see as spiritual competition? Well, let's look at the first section there as Paul preaches Christ in 16 through 21. See in verse 16 that it's Paul's spirit that's provoked within him. Who provokes his spirit? Well, we can trust that it is the Holy Spirit that provokes what, what really that word provoked there means angered. He's upset. He himself now becomes the agitated. Why? Because he sees a city full of idols. As he walks the streets, he sees monuments and statues built to these false gods. He goes, as you might expect, to the synagogue first. He reasons with them in the synagogue, just like he has done in Thessalonica and Berea. But now we find something new. And I really think this takes place because of what Paul sees in the streets. That he moves from the synagogue to the marketplace. And I love how Luke helps us understand the sovereignty of God and the importance of our own evangelism here in verse 17. Look back at that verse. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Great, we know that. And in the marketplace... Every day, he's in the public square, he's in the culture, reasoning with those, look at this, who happened to be there. What does this mean? It means that Paul shows up, and when there are people there, he goes to work. Friends, let that be a correction and an encouragement to you. That Paul here is not seeking out some specific thing or specific way of doing things just right and waiting for just the right opportunity and dragging his evangelism along and waiting until he has some precious time to share the gospel. No, he shows up and whoever's there, they hear the message. A practical application would be like, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm going to share the gospel with the checkout person, man, woman, white, black, Hispanic, it doesn't matter, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Whoever happens to be there, that's who's getting it. What a trust. And so as Paul is there, he meets some philosophers of the times. See there, they're called the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are two very different uh, philosophies and and ways of thinking. The the Epicureans, just really quick here, they they didn't care about spirituality. So, So all of these false gods, they don't really care about all the false gods. They don't care about all that spirituality. They only want insight into the world. They're bent on understanding the world we live in and nature and the way that things are made. And then you have the Stoics. They're kind of the other end. 
The Stoics, they, they loved what we call pantheism, this, this idea of, of many gods. They loved worshiping all of these false gods and understanding all of these false gods. And they, they even believed that, that humanity could be, could be divine in themselves and, and could reach the level. And that these gods communicated with humanity. And what do they do as, as, as they meet Paul? They call him there in verse uh, 18. What does this babbler wish to say? This word babbler mean, means someone who likes to go around and picks up little bits of information and then passes them off as their own. What does this babbler have to say? They, they think he's crazy. But we read down, jump down to verse 21, that they always like hearing something new. So even if he's crazy, it's new. Let's see what he's got to say. Something to do with our time. They want to hear more of what he's saying. But what is it exactly that he is saying? Don't miss this. There in verses 19 and 20. They took it, I'm sorry, verses 18 and 19. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching the same exact message, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Friends, unfortunately, there are times that people like to take this passage and use it to say that we have to be culturally relevant. That we have to learn to cater our, our, our message to the culture. That we have to bend the message of Christianity to make it fit into the culture. Now there are sides of that that, that, that I'm going to kind of draw out here in just a second. But what I don't want you to miss from the get-go is that Paul's message from the Jews to the Gentiles has not changed. He's still preaching the exact same message. It is Jesus and the resurrection. This ornate, beautiful city it doesn't press, impress Paul very much because he understands its false worship. Paul abhorred idolatry. And the reason he abhorred idolatry is because he adored Christ. And he was jealous for Christ to receive all the glory. The hope he explained in Athens was the same that he proclaimed in Thessalonica and Berea. Christian hope is the same, whether it's preached to the Jews or the Gentiles, to men or women, to rich or poor, educated or uneducated, young or old, it doesn't matter. It is the same hope. And so Paul is extended what we see in verses 19 and 20, an opportunity to share more in the center of the Areopagus, where there would be this council, and it's kind of this cultural hub, right? And this is what's traditionally known, some of your Bibles may translate it this way, as the Sermon on Mars Hill. It's this place where kind of everybody would gather, there would be a council that would sit there that would execute judgments, and, and Paul's invited there to, to give an explanation. He's not arrested, he's not on trial, but he's just asked to share this new thing that he's teaching. And the question for Paul and for us in giving the call to worship Jesus is what route will we take in sharing it with others? That's the question that Paul answers for us here. Paul, 
How does he answer this question about their false worship? They go straight for their heart. Let's look at it. Verses 22 through 34. It's a simple sermon. There's an introduction, an exposition, and then an application. Okay, so let's run through those three points of Paul's sermon here. First, the introduction in 22 and 23. He says, I perceive. Now, I just want to stop here and just point this out, okay? Paul's perception is good. And we all don't have to be like Paul in our own perception. But the important thing to see here is that Paul perceives. He has not removed himself from the culture. He doesn't just see the culture and then dabble in it. He doesn't just walk down the street with blinders on, but he perceives what's going on here. He doesn't just make note of it, but he actually understands what's going on underneath what he sees in the culture around us. And this is something, friends, that we could take up personally, that we need to be considering, is why does our culture operate the way that it does? I know there are lots of you who are ticked with the way that things are going right now in our country, and you don't like the way that things are. But the question is, why? What is the heart of worship that is underneath it? Why is it that people spend so much time on their devices, on social media, on bolstering themselves up, on having a great platform or putting just right pictures on the internet? It's the worship of self. Now, it doesn't matter what you think about the pandemic and how it's being held. The panic that's going on in our country right now is a sign of worship. Because people are upset and falling apart that their life may end. That, that, that their self may be harmed because we worship ourselves in this culture. There's an example for you. Why are things the way that they are? What is the heart? Because all worship manifests itself in some way. And so Paul notices how it manifests itself among them. He says, I see that you have this statue here. It says to the unknown God. We don't know what it looked like, but it was to the unknown God. And Paul is finding an inroad to their hearts. He doesn't lambast the expression of their worship, but he exposes their heart. He doesn't make fun of them for it, but he goes straight for their heart. He tells them his aim, that he's going to proclaim, not discuss. Notice that there in verse 23. I'm going to proclaim this to you. I'm not going to, we're not going to have a discussion right now. I'm going to tell you how it is. And he doesn't dress up his message or strip it down for them. Having got their attention, Paul seeks to expose the truth using Scripture to confront the culture head on. Often people, as I said a second ago, like to use this passage to talk about how we need to address our culture and and be relevant to our culture and and make sure that we're reaching our culture and and kind of cave on some certain things. So so this really in the last generation, one of the big movements is, is, well, we don't want to sing, you know, that that there's power in the blood because blood is off-putting. If if non-Christians show up to your church and you're singing about blood and lambs and sheep and and sacrifice, it's going to be off-putting. So don't don't talk about that. And sin, man, sin sin just upsets people. We tell people that they're wrong. So don't, don't, don't talk about sin too much. We see Paul has nothing to do with that. But he goes at it head on in his exposition in verses 24 through 28. First, he looks at how, I'm sorry, first look at how he describes God himself. 
He says, 24, verse 24, there's a God who made everything. This God I'm proclaiming to you is the God who made everything. And, and this God doesn't live in temples like your false gods do. He doesn't have statues. He doesn't have monuments. But He is in heaven above and He created everything. Verse 25, He is not served by mere religiosity. But He Himself sustains everything. He doesn't need your service to keep going. And then 26, this God, He made the nations. It's that Greek word we looked at before, the, the ethnos. He made the ethnicities from one man. And He is sovereign in directing their days and their seasons and their boundaries. Now to you reading that, it may not frustrate you or tick you off or cause you to raise your eyebrows, but but think about those Stoics who liked worshiping all of those gods, who had to serve those gods continually day after day so that they would be blessed and their life would be good and they would have children and their crops would come in and their businesses would flourish. Paul just kicked them in the face. And second, look at how Paul discusses this God's heart. In 27 and 28, he says that this God is omnipresent. He's revealing himself all around us. That he may be seen and known. I think this is the same idea that Paul himself picks up when he writes Romans 1. And then in 28 he uses two poets to illustrate that everyone sees this. Even your own pagan philosophers and poets and musicians, they get this. They see this. Just make a note here about secular art today. The music that we hear on the radio, the things we see in the museums, the movies that come across our screens. The world still gets it. The world still sees it. That we are in desperate need of saving. And that this world is desperately broken. But God doesn't stop here. Look at the application in verses 29 through 31. He says that there is a right way to think about God. And that those who don't think about God in the right way are ignorant. You think about these Epicurean philosophers who he's speaking to. The ones who they don't care much about spirituality, but they're all about knowledge and knowing things. And understanding how the world works and how nature works. And, and, and here he just kicked the Stoics in the face, talking about there only being one God. And now he comes right at the Epicureans too and saying, listen, you have operated in ignorance. What you thought you knew, you have no idea about. At this God... This God that I have just proclaimed to you, He is coming. And He will hold everyone accountable. And everything that you hold dear will be taken away. That He has fixed the day of righteous judgment. And He has given that judgment to one specific person to do. There is one man who will execute this judgment. And the way that we know who that man is, is he is the one who came back to life and has never died since, but has ascended to this one true God. And then it stops. That's the end of the sermon. Before we consider their response and our conclusion, let me just say this here. 
that far from skirting around the issues of the day, far from just easing up on the message and trying to be relevant, far from stripping it down and and not talking about sin or judgment, Paul is coming in hot. He's preaching judgment, guns blazing. In his gospel presenting, there's no icebreakers. There's no conversation starters. He doesn't whip out a card and say, let me tell you about the ABCs. All of those things are fine. But what I want you to see here is that equipped by the Holy Spirit, Paul is able to proclaim the goodness of God. At the same time proclaiming his justice and his looming judgment. Friends, we must share the glorious gospel with grace and truth. But too often we substitute grace and truth with nice and watered down. My encouragement to us as a church is that we wouldn't be that way. That we would preach the gospel guns blazing. With grace, but also with truth. But what at its core is that grace and truth? Well, that's where they balk. They fall apart. They can't handle it. 32 and 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They jeered. They sneered. They laughed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. We're not told about a huge conversion here. We're not told about those who followed him. It's just a few mentioned there. But some men joined him. We're given a couple of names there of some folks so that the first readers can go back and verify this. But why is it that the resurrection causes them to trip up? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this throughout the entire chapter, but this is the thread that runs throughout. It is the resurrection. It is the resurrection. Now, why was the resurrection too much for those Jews back in Thessalonica? And why does the resurrection cause them to mock here in Athens? What is it? Well, it's the same reason that it's too much for people in our own day. It's because the resurrection is the final key that unlocks a heart to worship Him. It is the final key. We are right to sing and to read and to preach about the death of Jesus Christ because it is the payment for our sins. But too often we miss the glory of the resurrection. And what it does to our worship. First spoken to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's too hot to handle. To the moralistic. If Jesus were not raised from the dead. Then we cannot have assurance that the price of our sins has been paid. Christ was the perfect lamb. He's offered in our place the single sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all who would turn to him. His death provides our only way to being accepted by God. Without it we are damned. But Christ's resurrection is the assurance that this was completed. And that no works of the law can make it any better. And no work of the law can get you there by yourself. But it's Christ's death and His resurrection that makes it secure. And what's more, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. Do you realize that? This is what flew in the face of these Gentile Athenians. 
They say they had never heard something like this. That there was a God who would come down. That He would live a perfect life for His followers, not demanding that they would live a perfect life for Him. And that He would die for them in their place. And that this God, who became man, would come back again. That He would rise from the dead. Friends, without the resurrection, Christianity would just be wishful thinking. Taking its place alongside every other human philosophy and religious speculation. Other religions are based on their teaching. Christianity is based on the death of Christ. And the resurrection is proof that it works. Christianity. Jesus. Speaking of the one we love. He has stood the test of time. This is significant. Because our faith in Him is the only faith that stands or falls on the truthfulness of His resurrection. And the advancement of the gospel and a gospel people is wrapped up in knowing this one central truth. Do you want to talk about Jesus more Do you want to love Him more so that out of your heart your mouth speaks? And see this truth held out by Paul today. Not just that our Savior died, but that He lives and is living for us and for His glory. Let us pray to Him now. God, we do come before You. In Christ our Savior, we exalt You as the one who died and rose again on our behalf. And in your resurrection have promised us new life. So God, as we prepare to take this holy meal now, well, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would show us through taking the bread and taking the cup that our life is sustained by you now forevermore. Make it so. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.